You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 242, Manny Rendawa and the Conduit of Grace. It's a little longer than usual, but so worth it. Are you stuck in your office spinning your wheels? Is it time for you to get away from your business so you can focus on the business? Maybe a retreat? I'm Katie Horner of the For Your Success podcast, and though my husband and I started out in full-time ministry, living well below the poverty line, our six-figure business now gives us ministry opportunities that far outweigh the ones we had in full-time ministry. Join me and my husband, Tap, on April 30th at the Get Out of the Boat Christian Business Virtual Retreat to recharge your batteries and let us show you how fun it can be to walk out your faith in your business with joy and confidence, because doing the business that God created you to do can be your best worship. The Get Out of the Boat Christian Business Retreat is April 30th from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., and you can attend from anywhere online. We can't wait to see you there. You can get all the info and register for your ticket right now at getoutoftheboat.com. Hey friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I'm your host, Eric Nevins. I'm so glad that you're here. We just yesterday passed 2 million podcasts published. You probably didn't know that, but I keep track of those things. And uh, that means that uh, if you found this one, you found one of 2 million. I'm glad that you're here, that you're listening. My hope is that it's going to be an encouraging conversation for you. I, I know that it will be. So if you go to um, halfwaytherepodcast.com, you can do a couple things. Sign up for our mailing list so you never miss an episode. You can also hit that Patreon button if you want to support us. And as always, if you just tell a friend, uh, we'd appreciate it. If you are a baseball person, you're going to love this one. I know you're going to be encouraged. Today, our guest is uh, MLB.com reporter, StatCast researcher, and author of the Blake Street Bombers, Manny Randawa. Manny, welcome to Halfway There. Thanks, Eric. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. I appreciate you having me on. I'm super excited to have you here. We, we connected. We were talking just a minute ago when we had Jerry Schimmel on the show a couple of years ago. Um, and I love that. Have, had, a, had a chance to have uh, some baseball-wise on the show recently in the last year or so. So I, I love baseball is one of my things. I know you're you're a Rockies guy, right? You're a Rockies reporter? Well, uh, I'm not a fan. Um, you're not. I came from, the, I came from California. I moved here in uh, 2016. Gotcha. Uh, so that's a good thing. I, I, I think being, you know, not being a fan of a team that you cover uh, to me is an advantage. So it's, oh. uh, I cover the Rockies, but I also cover uh, a lot of times the road teams that come through here. Um, so, cause a lot of times, you know, we don't want to send the beat reporter to the lost time zone here in Colorado. And then <laughs> right. you know, uh, they're like, well, he's there, you know, let, you know, he can cover them for, the, for this, for this weekend or whatever. So that's kind of what I do. I also do stat cast stuff and, um, just, um, you know, it's, it's, I, we were talking about before we started this, you know, that, you know, you said, I have a dream job. I do. And I'm really thankful for that, that. blessing to have. And, um, it's just a lot of fun to do, you know, fun baseball stories and things like that. I think, you know, baseball more than any other sport is one of those where it's like, um, the tradition, the history, mm -hmm. the, um, there's just, there's a much, much more rich history. And I think that people are, people really enjoy baseball in a different way. 
Yeah. I was just going to ask that what you love about it. And that that's probably my favorite thing too, is it's not just, you know, I'm a Cardinals fan. So I've probably seen at, you. Yeah. Well, right. It's good to be a Cardinals fan. I grew up in Iowa. I could have been a Cubs fan. That would have been a disaster, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, but there's so much to it, right? There's players, there's, there's just this, there's rich tradition um, that people, people don't always, you know, understand. And, uh, you know, I don't get the whole thing with people wanting to change the game. Like, no, no, it's, it's, there's some, you, man. that's a whole nother podcast, but I tell you what, right. That, that's um, I, I, baseball is just fine. Yeah. Um, but I think that we're, we're trying to, um, you know, we live in a different age now where our attention spans are shorter and we, we just can't, uh, you know, we can't do what we used to do maybe when we were kids, which is just sit by a radio for, right. you know, three and a half hours and be totally fine with it. Yeah. Well, when people zig, it's time to zag. And I think that's one of the things that baseball does so well is it, it's a pastime, right? It's you go to the park yeah. and you hang out with people and you talk to your family and you, you know, or your friends or the people around you. I've made, I've talked to so many people. Absolutely. You meet people, right? Like yeah. It's, it's just a, a common experience, a common shared uh, love of, of a game. And you don't really do that. If you go to an NBA game, you don't really do that. If you go to an NFL right. game necessarily, but baseball, because you have the time between the pitches, because you have, of visits of the mound and stuff like that. Those moments, you know, those opportunities are afforded. In yeah. Situation. I love that. All right. I got to tell you one story and then we'll, we'll get into your story. We, so we go to, my dad comes out cause we're Cardinals fans. I moved here from Chicago. So the Cardinals go to Chicago a couple times Boy, a year. Right? Chicago as a Cardinals fan. Yeah, it was tough. It, Rough. it was tough. And that was the year I actually, okay, this is, you'll, you'll appreciate this in a way most people wouldn't. I actually worked at the same company of Steve, as Steve, Steve Bartman the year that that happened. Are you serious? Yes. Isn't that wow. crazy? I didn't know any, him. Do you have any kind of cool stories about like, uh, they're not cool because of what happened to him was terrible, but right. you know, just some things that we might not know about. Well, I didn't know, like I didn't know him and it was kind of surprising to me too, right? That, that he was there, but um, I did there were things that happened like, it, the, you know, email gets circulated. Okay. Don't, if anybody calls for Steve, because we were, it was a call yeah. center. Right. So no, like reporters were finding his num- numbers to our company and things like that. Um, they had to shut off his email, his phones, like everything that he had to go. He had to get a special, um, you know, a special thing to like park in a certain spot. So people couldn't see him all kinds of things. It, it was just, it was awful. Uh, but it was interesting to kind of like have that sort of, kind of a glimpse inside. And then years later, uh, when I think ESPN did a story on him, uh, I don't know if it was like five years, maybe I was still there. Maybe it wasn't that long. 30 for 30. I don't know. Maybe, but there was, there was like about the, um, where they showed the, all the Buckner stuff and yeah, I don't stuff was along with it. I'm not sure what it was. I I read it online, but I was still working there and I could, they described the building where they were like staking out, looking for him to come out. <laughs> and I was like, I know that place. Like, Whoa. Okay. It was just so being watched. weird and creepy. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. But poor, poor guy. Anyway. So yes, I was a Cardinals fan at there. Here's the story I wanted to tell you. So when I moved to Colorado, you know, the Cardinals only come out here once a year, right? Cause they're central yeah. division. Uh, so my dad and I go to every single baseball game that the Cardinals have been. And the, so 2005 was the first year we were here. We went to three of the four and every year since we've seen every Cardinals inning, uh, as I think wow, cool. that has been here. So we've seen some great players. Hey, what was the first year you went? You said 2005, 2005. Okay. And I think we only went to two, maybe three of those games, but then most years we go every, every single year, um, every single we'll game on the fourth then, right? Yes. We're going to be there and planning on it. My wife was like, wish you wanted to do a trip. I was like, Nope, we're, <laughs> we've got this going. But one time we were sitting there and we saw this dad, this guy who who was probably in his sixties 
and um, he was there with his dad, who must have been in like at least his eighties, maybe, maybe older. And he, um, the guy had a notebook of every baseball game where he was. It was like a notebook of, um, of how, what do you call it? The how you keep track of the score, a scorecard notebook, you know. Card, yeah. yeah. So, and he had kept track of games that he had seen. They, they were originally from St. Louis. And so he had games in his notebook that where he had kept score with like, you know, some of the greats of the game, right? Like from wow. that he had watched and that's, so getting back to tradition, sorry, that took a long time to get here, but no, like, fine. get like that, that's the kind of thing, right? This guy, as a kid, he had been taking, keeping score of games that like mutual was in right. And things like that. Like that's, that's so cool. That's insane. And he was still coming to the ballpark sitting right next to me. And then, you know, kind of, and you could look at it. You yeah. Know, like right. He wrote that. He wrote that at, you know, wherever, wherever they were playing. He wrote that on this date in 1940, whatever. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. I love that. All right. Well, Manny, I knew I'd have to geek out with you a little bit about baseball at the, at the beginning here, but yeah, I could talk baseball forever. I yeah. love it. It's, no. it's just one of the things that, I absolutely love. Um, but I want to hear your story because that's another thing I love is seeing how God works in people's lives. And um, I know you have a story. So I want to hear that. Um, let's go back. Like, where are you from? You said you're from California. And what was yeah. what was that like growing up for you? Well, I was from the, I'm from the Bay Area. I uh, grew up about uh, 45 minutes northeast of San Francisco. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into my story all, you know, all in right now, but it's kind of that's kind of where it starts. I mean, yeah, um, go for it. Really actually starts from before that. Um, my parents emigrated from India in 19, uh, my mom came here in 1976 and my dad in 1980. And um, in India, I mean, to this day, they do arranged marriages. So uh, my, my, um, my folks got, you know, they, they, it wasn't really a relationship style marriage. It was just arranged based on other family members, knowing family, knowing the two families and, putting them together. Yeah. What, what is that my like? What is that like? Yeah. It, it's like basically the mechanics of this one were my dad and my mom were from neighboring villages in India. Um, very poor, rural, Northwest in Punjab. So kind of close to the Pakistan border. And they, so, but, you know, separately came here, but for my dad um, to, to be able to stay in the United States, and become, you know, a uh, permanent resident, he wanted, he, he wanted to, he would need to get married to have that, uh, that status right away. And so he called his uncle who was in Berkeley. That's why we ended, he ended up moving to Northern California. Oh yeah. And uh, his uncle's like, Whoa, you're here. You know, cause most people, most of their relatives would come here like illegally, you know, they wouldn't come here. <laughs> you know, with a, My dad got here sort of, I mean, he, he lied to the, to the um, immigration officer that he was a student. You know, that's what he said. Yeah. And, uh, and he charmed the student. He charmed this guy apparently because this guy, you know, booked him a hotel and everything, took him to the bus stop. It was snowing. He was in Montreal. Uh, that's the first place he came to Canada. Yeah. And, uh, he decided to go there because it was an Olympic city. You know, the last Olympics were there and it was Christmas time and he thought people would be more generous and, uh, you know, more willing to, to maybe let him stay. Yeah. So, um, he gets here and he calls, uh, my uncle from Canada and my uncle or my great uncle, I should say. And it's uh, his uncle. And he said, okay, let me get back to you. And, you know, they worked out an arranged marriage over time. And, uh, you know, that that's really at the root of, of um, uh, not the root, but at the beginning of this story, because they, their, the relationship was never good. Um, I grew up in kind of an abusive uh, household. It was, 
Um, you know, my dad was physically and emotionally abusive with my mom. He was emotionally abusive with myself and I have a younger brother. And um, it was to the point where it was just, we were just scared of, scared of our dad. He was domineering. He was, um, he was a narcissist. He was basically a malignant narcissist. I mean, he was like, when he grew up, it was, <clears throat> he was poor. His dad was a drug addict, so he was never around. And any of the money that they made from farming, he would take to the local nearest town where he could get drugs, including for my dad's school books and whatever, you know. So my dad was the oldest boy, so he had to take over the farming. He was 11. And so he's doing the farming, trying to feed the family. And he was kind of hardened by that. And so um, I think that he feel, I felt, I feel like he had to then, he felt like he had to have control of everything in his life. Otherwise, because he never wanted to have that feeling of being out of control. Yeah. Out of, out of control with things happening to him and him, him being a victim. So he was very much, he wanted to control his kids, wanted to control his wife, wanted to control everything. Um, he was a very ambitious, he is a very ambitious man. Uh, I haven't spoken to him in more than a decade now, but he, uh, he is a very ambitious man and uh, he wanted to, he started start a business. Um, so he started a business, an Indian grocery store. He thought, well, Bay Area, a lot of Indian immigrants now and they'll need someplace to shop for food. And so set that up, um, did that for a while, while at the same time working full-time in the California prison system. Uh, he worked at San Quentin, he worked at uh, Folsom Prison, he became a procurement officer, so basically in charge of the budget for supplies and all that stuff. And uh, he, uh, the, the, the Indian grocery store business was doing okay for a while, but then it kind of started to fail. He sold it at a loss, I think, and uh, begun a travel agency instead. So he was a very um, entrepreneurial guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and he also wanted to run, he wanted to be in politics. You know, eventually he was, he's a very smart guy. He wanted, he learned English all by himself. I mean, self-taught, he was the fifth grade education guy, you know, in terms of what his education was in India. And uh, he went to the army to get out of that situation. And then when he, when he was in the army, I know I'm kind of bouncing back when he was in the army in India, he found out the caste system also leads into that. And so if you're not of the right caste, you won't become an officer in the army. Mm. So that's when he decided to come West. So he's doing all these things. He's, uh, but, but at the same time, his, his family life is very, there's a lot of turmoil there. Um, and we were, you know, we were basically uh, emotionally abused. I would say my, my brother and myself for our whole, our whole childhood. And uh, so one, there was one time when I was, uh, 23 years old um i was still living at home because that was the way that my father wanted and so he said we're gonna go to church and i said because uh, he wasn't a, a christian he was a sikh okay. although i think he was i think uh and sikhism is it was kind of born out of muslim and hindu war and they wanted to have that you know the, the folks in Punjab kind of created their own religion there and so um, he uh, was technically a Sikh, but really kind of, I think he was an atheist. Uh, and he kind of instilled that in me and my brother. And um, he, uh, but so I was kind of, you know, surprised about that. You know, wants to go to church, but he was running for political office. He wanted to be in the city council. So it made sense. Oh. He wanted to like, you know, meet and greet folks. And, you know, in, in America, you yep. got to be seen as, as a Christian. And so that's what he's, it's the reason why he got me into baseball. Actually, he's the reason I got into baseball. And like, I was a shy kid. I, I didn't know anything about sports. And 
when I was around eight years old, he's like, you're going to play baseball because that's the American game. And you're going to do that. And this is the way we're going to do it. This is the way we assimilate. And uh, so he, I kept dragging my feet about signing up, you know, cause he signed up at school back then. And um, he, he drove me down one day and made me sign up and all that. So the love of baseball started right there. He kind of forced me into it. Wow. That's interesting. Which is also interesting about my, my testimony because he forced me into that, going to that church. And so we went to that church and uh, I had gone to, I was 23 at this point. I got into Christian high school um, all four years because my parents wanted to shelter me from the public, public schools. And it's not like they were believers, but they, they didn't want to go me to go to the 3000 kid school where drugs, alcohol, all that gangs, all that stuff. And if he goes to a Christian school, there's 200 kids there. There's a dress code. He'll be good. You know? So that's wow. kind of how it was. That's really interesting. So it sounds like, like you were kind of introduced to Christianity as sort of a utilitarian, this will make you a a good person and an American. Yes, exactly. Um, Okay. They weren't, they weren't worried about indoctrination from their perspective. Yeah. It would have been indoctrination, but they weren't worried about that. I think my father felt like he had tight enough control on what I believed. Um, And that was you, uh, you're alone in this world. You can't really trust anyone. And uh, you got to make it on your own. And there's no God. Um, it's just you. And you can, and I, I, I could kind of see why he developed that point of view because of what happened to him. Right. When he was a kid. So um, he used uh, his religion of Sikhism um, as a as a political means. He did, you know, I mean, he started a Sikh temple. Um, and because uh, so much of our society is interfaith, you know, like everybody get along, you know, those those bumper stickers that have all the the sign, the, the religious signs and says peace and all that. He knew that he could get away with being, you know, starting a temple, but also going to this Christian church for a while, you know? And so he, we go there and it turns out that a lot of my former teachers went to this um, church. So it was nearby where we lived. And uh, so I recognize a lot of people there. Um, I never believed as a, uh, obviously as a, uh, a high schooler, like I, I got A's in Bible because I got A's you know, in school, because my dad made yeah. me get A's, you know, I, you're going to go to, you're going to go to Harvard or what, you know, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Everything was planned out. I was supposed to be a lawyer and my brother was supposed to be a military officer. He actually is now. He's a captain in the Air Force. He went to the Air Force Academy. Wow. He's, the, he's a captain in the Air Force. And then I was supposed to become the president one day. You know, I was, it's just, this was supposed to be straight up the Indian version of the Kennedy, Kennedy family, you know? Okay. So obviously part of the narcissistic, uh, the symptoms of being a yeah, uh, yeah. narcissist, you have delusions, that, grandeur. That's a lot of pressure too. Did you feel that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, JFK was like my hero you oh. know, because I was supposed to be him, you know? And so I, I got obsessed with him and I started reading all about all, every book I could find on him and all that kind of stuff while I was in high school. But uh, so, yeah, so, but I didn't believe, you know, anything. I, I, I remember one time in Bible class in our school uh, where uh, there was this kid who was messing around in, in, uh, in the back and miss english was the name of our bible teacher and she called him over and and told him i know a person in this room who doesn't even believe in the bible and he gets ace and you're just messing around over there or whatever <laughs> and um that stuck with me and and because it was about me you know i was involved in that yeah yeah conversation but um i was very self-conscious about so i was trying to bl- i was trying to blend in i was totally trying to be that guy like that oh yeah i go to church yeah yeah yeah. i know all this stuff and i would pretend i was because i didn't want to be um i didn't want to be preached to i didn't want to be like i didn't want people thinking i wasn't part of the crowd yeah part of the group 
And so I totally pretended that whole time. So people around me thought I was a Christian because I could talk the talk. I could do that. And I know a lot of people do. Yeah, isn't that um, interesting, right? Because it doesn't, yeah. being able, knowledge does not in, equal relationship with God. And I think absolutely not. so often we right. get that wrong. Well, I mean, and, and, and for me, it was so stark when I became a believer because I was reading words that um, I read many times before, but they meant something now mm-hmm. and they did not then. Um, uh, and so I really understood what it was to be veiled by Satan and also have the knowledge of the truth. Um, reading the same things and getting nothing out of it, reading the same things, and it's totally life-giving, you know. So um, anyways, so I was in school and I remember we were at a retreat in our sophomore year and this all plays into what happened at our church when I started going there uh, when I was 23. He, um, my biology teacher was walking me with me back to the cabins, you know, boys' cabins. And uh, he knew I wasn't, I wasn't a believer. And he said, uh, he just struck up a conversation with me. He's like, um, what do you think? I mean, you know, uh, you, I understand that you, you don't really believe in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, yeah. And for me, you know, what you just said about knowledge and the heart, it, as, a seven, as a 16-year-old, like, it did not register for me. I thought knowledge, if you have the knowledge, you're good. Right. You're okay. You can then decide. Yeah. What you want to do with that, you know, whether you want to believe or not. And so I said, I know, I know all of it. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm doing well in, in Bible class. I got, you know, some of these really naive answers, you know, and he said, but is knowing the same thing as feeling in your heart and, and, and knowing in your heart versus your head, because that's, there's a difference. And that, that's where we left the conversation. And I just kind of went we our separate cabins, you know, our separate ways. And um, I never forgot that because when I, went to this church. He wasn't actually, that was my biology teacher, Mr. Fuller. He wasn't in this church, but Miss, my, my English teacher was there. Some other teachers of mine from high school and we're doing worship. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd heard all these songs before we had Wednesday chapel, you know, every week yeah. at school, I'd heard all these songs before, Yep. Uh, you know, dozens of times over four years. <clears throat> so it wasn't the songs that really, mattered you know i just was i was playing the part i was doing i was a son of this guy who was a candidate for city council whatever um but from the very first day we went during worship music we were uh that we were standing and everything and i started to like this was really scary for me i started to um become incredibly emotional i was not a really emotional guy because emotion wasn't allowed in our family you know yeah. it's a weakness and so um so i was getting really emotional and i, I had to, it took everything i had to not break down and actually cry like right in the middle of the congregation in the, in the sanctuary just break down and cry and start weeping i don't know how i kept it together i probably had you know tears and stuff that i was just doing whatever to know i wipe them away and not be noticed you know kind of do it inconspicuously but um I bit my, my lip, kept it together. And so we started going back because this was in, um, this was in early year of the year, like January, February, and he was running in obviously elections in the fall. So he kept going. Yeah. Going back every, and every single time, the same thing again and again and again, every single week. And I couldn't, I, this scared me because if I'm not an emotional guy, everything has to make sense. Everything right. has to be, my this thought began here in the, at point A in my brain, and it ended, it terminated in point B in my brain. And I know everything that happened along the way. 
this was point B without point A. There was no beginning. It just happened. And in fact, it was all a, it was all inside my my it was my emotions. It was my heart. It wasn't my my head. And so it was it was scary because it kept happening. If it was a one off thing, I'm like, whatever. I don't know. Maybe I ate bad pizza. You know, whatever. Right. Um, but it started happening for six months every every Sunday. And over time, the only thing I could do, um, because there's there are no answers for something like that. You can go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whatever, but if it's happening in church only, yeah, isolated to that, um, yeah, that's probably there's only one place to go. And I dusted up the, the old Bible. I had an NIV high school Bible, you know, from back a paperback from back in the day, you know, yeah, yeah. in high school. And I, I was like, the only place I could go is here. And I was like, I didn't believe it. I knew I wasn't gonna believe it, but I still did it you know i was curious enough and over that six month period i started going from complete denial of christ of god of anything supernatural in fact to um could it be possible and then i did i then i made the the huge mistake of trying to use logic in all of this and trying to like work it out in my brain could god have really become a man and died for our sins and I started going through this stuff conceptually in my brain. None of that, none of that helped, you know. And in the end, in in um, in uh, September, September 9th, two thousand seven, I'm sitting in my in my dad's home office. He's out there in the um, in the in, on the patio having a drink. Um, he liked whiskey. He was having he was having a drink, just sitting there. And uh, I was and Joel Osteen was on the TV. Now, disclaimer, I think Joel Osteen is one of the worst creatures on the planet. Prosperity <laughs> gospel guy, guy who, who promises a bill of goods, snake oil salesman. But this was also really powerful for me because it was his program at which the only time he mentions Jesus at the end, when he says, if you're not a believer in Jesus, pray with me, you know, and let's do this. And I did. And at that very moment, again, Point B without point A. That's how I did it. I did not actually think about doing it. It just happened. And then I was kind of stunned afterwards. And the show's over, whatever. Some, you know, Fox News comes on. I don't know what it was. It was probably not that. It was probably one of the, the, the uh, network channels. But anyways, whatever's going on now, I'm not paying attention to it. I'm sitting in the chair and I'm like, what just happened here? Um, and I go outside because everything revolved around my dad. My dad was basically my God because he held the power of life and death. I remember there was wow. one time my mom and dad divorced for a time because of all the abuse. And, and, but they got back together because, um, and I know I'm not letting you get a word in here edgewise. I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. I'm, I'm listening. I, I know how to do it if I have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, so anyways, we're driving, they got back together because of family pressures. Again, they got an arranged marriage and they got back yeah, together. Yeah. Because, hey, this is not allowed. You're not supposed to do divorce. You got kids, whatever, do it for them. It was nothing as far as the abusive nature of everything of the relationship changed. So we're um, driving back from some some party or something one night. We're in American Canyon. I remember where we were. There was these hills that formed this funnel that created this this incredibly strong wind that really plagued us when we tried to play baseball you know, in Little League because <laughs> yeah, right. pop up was an adventure. You know, you you remember the stories about Candlestick Park? It's basically like that, except. You know, we had this, these, these, these hills funneling it. And so we were right, past, we were driving right through the major part of those hills. And my dad was like really drunk, like he was hammered. 
and he was an alcoholic and, and he, um, he was starting to punch my mom, like in the driver's seat, like, and because he thought, I don't know what it was, but he got infuriated about something that happened, you know, while they were divorced, something she said about, you know, I don't know what it was. Yeah. And so that was, he was doing that. And then, and then me and my brother, I'm like, I guess I'm like eight. Maybe my brother's like five, seven, four. Um, we're three, he's three years younger than me. And he turns back and says, that's, this is it tonight. This is your last night. I'm going to kill all of you. And so, oh. yeah, so mm, we're doing whatever seven and four year olds do in their brains when they hear something like that. And we get home and, uh, you know, we were trying to talk him down because like, I mean, what do you say if you're that age and you're talking to an adult, you know? Right. Um, but he started sobering up too. And so, uh, didn't do that. Thank God. And, um, so, but scared, scared us to death. And, um, there was one other time where he, he had an unloaded gunner. He was drunk and he pointed it to my brother. My brother just started crying, obviously. Yeah. He's scared. And so these are the kind of things that would happen. And, uh, so obviously he was the, he, everything revolved around him. And so he was my God. And so I said, Hey dad, I, uh, I think I just became a Christian. And he said, all right, yeah, everybody needs something. And I think he thought that it was a phase, you know, that he'll, you know, he's set, he's, he's, he's still young enough and impressionable enough that he's going to grow out of it. But man, everything started changing in my life at that point. I'm really fascinated, man. So uh, I one time heard, <laughs> I one time heard Andy Stanley say, hey, you can criticize Joel Olstein, but if you can't fill Madison Square Garden and share the gospel with people, Maybe you should be careful, right? Which I think is really fascinating. Uh, because, and I totally agree. Like, I'm not saying that to you at oh, all. Yeah, no, I, that's that's yeah, that's one of those where it's what? like he doesn't preach the gospel. Yeah, he actually preaches a, a different uh, gospel, which is no gospel at all, as it says in the scriptures. And but, that's what that's my problem with him. He's teaching something that, uh, to me, is demonic. And the reason I say that is because it involves completely another uh, teaching that is masquerading as a gospel in my opinion but what's fascinating about it for me is that god can even use that right i mean there's that passage oh, right that's what i was going to get back to you that was what was so amazing yeah that and i tell people that when i tell my you know i'm giving you my testimony i tell people that i'm like you know what as it just as in the old testament in isaiah god used people who weren't believers rulers who weren't believers to do the things that he wanted them to do with Israel, et cetera, et cetera. He's done that throughout history. Right. Boy, he used Joel Osteen's program of all things. And I feel like it's almost one of those Gideon come mm -hmm. down your army things, you know, because it's like, I'm going to show it's me. Right. I'm going to show it's me by taking this guy and that you come into faith while watching his program sort of thing. So yeah, that was really powerful. There's a, I, I forget which book is in, I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't, where Paul talks about, you know, Hey, look, the gospel is being preached, right? Made this in Colossians, yes. right? It's so even, even if, um, you know, even if the, some people preach the gospel out of selfish ambition in order to stir up trouble for me. Uh, but what do I care? Cause the gospel is being preached, which is really interesting. And so even, you know, you can go, Hey, yeah. Okay. I don't agree with him. I don't, I, I see what he's doing and I, I think that's bad. Uh, I see all these other, all these problems, but also God used him to preach the gospel to me. I just think that's so yeah, fascinating. I'm glad I tuned in at the end. Yeah. Right. That's right. The one time he says the word Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And when he did that, it was like, God used that right there. Yep. You know, and that was really amazing. 
Yeah, and I have friends who who've talked about on the show about prosperity gospel and how that's sure, I'm not sure you led, led them in places too. So I, I totally get that. But interesting. So I wanted to highlight that because yeah. I, I just thought, wow, it's one of the things I love hearing stories about that that God uses things that you wouldn't absolutely believe. Um, and yet yet he does. Okay. So you so you gave your life to Christ sort of unexpectedly, certainly not something you were felt like you were seeking, but God was giving you these sort of I a, wasn't in it. Nobody was preaching to me either. Right. Because I knew, I mean, I knew the the story, right? Yeah. Went to high school, Christian high school, all that. But um, nobody, not one person spoke to me directly about the Lord and how I need to repent and believe. Nobody. And yeah. um, it was all through the emotion that was happening in, in those worship times. And then just looking and trying to figure it out and then never figuring it out. But it just went like that and happened one day. Yeah. yeah. So what do you make of the fact that God used emotions like he used your emotions to speak to you which probably is just something completely different than what you normally um for me yeah we do yeah well um for me emotion he used emotion in the sense that it was scary like because i'm not i was not an emotional guy and if i was emotional i mean we're all emotional people we, we all have emotions but i was um a guy that obviously shoved them down you know, and, and kept them down and kept yeah. them buried. And so he used that as a way to break all of, break my, 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 um, cell, right. Crack my shell, break my differences. Right. Well, there's so a, that was an amazing. Yeah. There's an interesting way to, I hear in that it's a call to wholeness, right? Like there's a, the, the gospel is really about our whole being. Right. And so it's not just, yeah. it's your mind, but it's also your heart and the, yeah, it shows the will is not enough. That's right. You absolutely cannot do it on knowing it alone. You have to have a heart change. You have to be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. You have to be transformed. Because what I look at now, I remember the date, and it was in the three o'clock hour, I think. And I, I still remember the date and the time because it was just, it was stark. It was stark because from that point on, literally like within days, things started to completely change. I ended up, you know, leaving my father's house mm. and for a guy who's 23 staying in his father's house that's because it's, there's some sort of power his father has over him and in case this case it was mortal fear and you know in july of 09 so about a little less than two years later i'm gone yeah and it's because he was so hostile to us to to me and and, and here's the other thing too and and within six months so i'm a, i'm a believer i'm walking past my mom and obviously my mom is distraught she's having her situation was much worse than mine because she was being beaten physically, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, and she even came from kind of controlling parents too. So she actually never had a moment in her life where she was kind of independent and able to make her own decisions and wow. do her, her own thinking. And she's like, at this point, she's like almost 50 years old. So I handed her my Bible bookmarked in Matthew. I said, um, this really helped me. I, I don't know if you'll read it, but it really helped me. And, I would start right there if you want to read it. She was an incredibly devout Sikh. She was, um, she had all the pictures of the gurus. She had a whole room dedicated to mm. like pictures of the gurus and their, their holy book and everything. And she had always been, you know, her father was big time into it. Um, he was, you know, just as devout uh, in that religion as you could find. And so I didn't know what to expect. You know, I, I gave it to her. And then slowly but surely from September into early next year, Within about a six-month period, 
this, the picture started coming down off the walls. Wow. And I'm, she didn't say anything to me, but like, I'm like, wow, well, that's interesting. And so she's like, all this stuff is happening. Then the book is gone and the room is empty as if the house has just gotten bought and it's a new room. And wow. then a few days later, she comes to me at the, at the table and she, at the dinner table, I'm just kind of sitting there and she says, uh, what do I do to be a believer in Jesus? And, wow. you know, I was taken aback for a second, but then I was like, well, um, and this is where the, this is where my high school training, you know, the, the training of my mind, I guess was very helpful. I said, well, let's pray. And I can, and I can pray with you and you can say the same thing that I'm saying in terms of asking the Lord Jesus to, uh, uh, to be your Lord and savior. And so, uh, we did that and I have not had, to this day, I get, I got my phone back here. I, I have a text in there from this morning. Every morning I get a verse from her Wow. and it's like, the transformation that that I saw in her from what she was to what she is, that's, that's like, you know, a good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree, uh, bad fruit, uh, tree can't bear good fruit. I'm going to be able to say that. Um, and she was bearing this fruit now and I could see it and it was just an incredible. And for my mom, because she came to it in such a late age and after so much abuse in her life, like I, I've never been, I've not been pleased by more by watching somebody's transformation, what God has done with somebody's life than I have with my mom. And uh, so she, so she became a believer and that's what really set my dad off. And then um, because he was our God. And when you, when you you take that kind of power away from a narcissist, boy, watch out. And so we were, we, we left, I I met someone, um, we dated for a couple of years, got married. Um, I moved to, um, we, we lived in Sacramento for a while, um, but we were both in the law, law, on the law track, and I even went to law school for a little bit, I did, and, and we both decided not to do it. Like, we didn't, it was more, mostly because our parents wanted us to do it, right? Yeah. So we decided at that point, do we want to put our rest of our lives in this? And so we didn't know what to do, so we took a break for a while. We're working, you know, and, and we're taking, taking a break in terms of our career path. And um, I started just, you know, I remember starting to read the uh, sports section of the San Francisco Chronicle again after a long time. Cause when I was a little bit younger, I used to read it a lot because I was a big Giants fan and uh, um, the, the sporting green was one of the great sports sections in the country. Um, yeah. probably still is. And so I was reading that one day, it was 2010. And um, if you know Giants in 2010, that was the year that they, finally won the world series after 56 years yeah and for the first time since moving to san francisco so they had a good decade after that that summer when they it looked like they couldn't score yeah it couldn't score a run you know and, and so they were always losing to the padres bud black's padres yeah and so um i remember talking to buddy later on about about that game about game 162 because i was at that one that's when they won the division on the last day against the padres and so uh i was i was holding a newspaper in my hand tim linskin was on the front i remember uh of the visual i remember the pictures of the moment because i was walking across the street sacramento to my my girlfriend then girlfriend's house and i had the paper in my hand i had probably just read some of the story probably by hank shulman or somebody um and uh i said god this would be so cool hmm. i knew i was a good writer i got a, you know i i had always enjoyed writing eventually i i got a perfect score on my mcat or my not mcat m they call the, the GMAT, right? The, the, the graduate yeah. school guys. And I'm like, I can write. And I love, I love baseball. Um, how cool would this be? And I just, I said it like, I was speaking with the Lord, but I just, 
it did it, it wasn't serious right it was it was kind of serious but not really serious because i knew there's no way i can just go from what i'm doing right now and somehow get into a position where i could do that um and then bleacher report shows up which uh, now is owned by turner so you see all the commercials on tnt during basketball games yeah like that. but before that the reason why they got sold for so much to turner is because they figured out seo search engine yep. optimization they figured out how to get their results from amateur writers along with the chronicle guys along with the, the the espn guys right and so they're like we got that and we'll let you write for us and get that exposure if you don't if we're not gonna pay you so it's kind of controversial but but I took that up and I was like, let me see, let me, let me try this, you know? And because this is an opportunity where you don't have to have a specific background, you can do it. Yeah. And I started writing and I got a lot of good feedback. And one day I was just um, Googling sports journalism. And the very first site that comes up is the URL sportsjournalism.org. And that's IU, Indiana University's um, sports journalism master's program, the only one of its kind. So I come home, I tell my, now we're married. I tell my wife, yeah, this is crazy. I was, I was Googling this and there's a school that does this. And she goes, you should go for it. I'm oh, like, wow. are you serious? I mean, that would be like uprooting ourselves, going to Indiana, you know, and Indiana from California. Every time I say we did that, that's a big deal. Like what? Yeah. Why would you go from California to Indiana? And so she said, I want to do nonprofit management. I can look and see if they have like a nonprofit management graduate program. And there was one like next door to the sports journalism part, you know? Wow. So like, and we had already planned on doing, because we were taking this break from like career stuff because we didn't know what to do. We were already doing this. Well, we want to see the world. We don't have kids yet or anything. We want to see the world. Can't do it the normal way. But she had found this organization called WOOF, Worldwide Opportunities for Organic Organic Farming. And so like you go on a farm, you work for them. They pay your, they take care of you. They, you get to live with them. You get the, the room and board is taken care of. And then on your free time, you go and visit the sites. And so we saw like nine countries in Europe that way, um, went to Greece, went to Italy, went to all kinds of places, and we were able to do that. But that was after we decided to apply to IU um, and see what happens. Yeah. So we broke the lease on our apartment, left um, for, for uh, Europe, did that thing, got an email while we were in Italy that said we both got into the school. And because the, the great thing was they didn't require a journalism degree for my stuff. Yeah. Cal. So it's like, I didn't need, you know, uh, a specific, you know, prerequisite. And we got in, we went and one day our, uh, Malcolm Moran, our, our incredible director of that program. Um, the guy that I somewhat doubt doesn't know anyone in sports because he knows everybody. In sports. I mean, literally everybody. I've never seen a guy with so many connections and so much networking. We went to the World Baseball Classic in San Francisco, of all places. So it's kind of a homecoming for me. Um, he took me and one other student who were interested in baseball because he had a connection with MLB.com and, and the guy who runs the internship program there. He used to run it. We don't have it anymore, the internship program. And uh, we were doing a story. We were doing our own little thing. And they said, we're a little short-staffed here. Allison Footer, I really owe it to you. I don't know if you've heard of Allison Footer. She writes for MLB.com as well. She's in, she writes in Houston. But she, she was there covering this her and Barry Bloom. Oh yeah. And she um, said, we need a little extra help. We're a little short staffed here. Can you guys take a little more of the burden? And so we need to, you guys to pitch us some ideas. And right before I had left, I had seen this uh, story about a Japanese catcher, uh, Shinosuke Abe. He was a 34 year old, I think, catcher for the Yumiuri Giants uh, in Japan. And he was like the best player in baseball. 
He just won the MVP, just won the Japan Series, which is the equivalent of our World Series with his Giants, won the batting title, batting average title that year. And uh, so I'm like, okay, that's really interesting because I feel like Buster Posey did all of those things last year and he plays for the Giants. So I go over there, I look that stuff up and I'm like, these guys are like long lost twins. I mean, they're the same guy, except wow. one's a little younger and one's in America and one's in Japan. So I'm like, this would be cool to do. I, di I didn't have any, you know, um, any idea that I would be able to do it, but I, I had it in the back of my mind. We get there, now they're asking for pitches. I'm like, okay. Uh, how about this? And they're like, that's pretty cool. If you can get, like, if you can get him to talk to you. So I'm like, okay, I go down, we're down there. It was really cool. Nighttime batting practice at at and Park, then at and Park, down the right field line. And uh, I find out who the Japanese media relations person is. And she's like, I was like, can I, I, I would like to speak to Shinasa Kiawe, please. She's like, she looks at me suspiciously because I, <laughs> I don't know. She's like, I don't know about this guy. You know, they, they do a little evaluation, you know, um, before they decide who's, who's going to talk to who. Yeah. Um, or if they're going to talk to them at all. And she goes, do you have a business card? And I'm like, yes, I do. And it was because I remembered in a panic on the day before I was supposed to leave, get on the plane that I didn't have business cards. And I just made these really crappy, like, you know, <laughs> like you put it in hard, hard stock paper. Like, yeah you know, in, the, in your printer and you make little cards and try to get the margins right. And so I was like, I got something. I mean, this is not, this is not going to work. I'm thinking as I'm running back up to the press box, I get it, go back down. Um, I find her again. It's like, here you go. And she looks at it even more suspiciously this time, <laughs> looks up at me and she's like, hold on. She, she starts walking away. She doesn't come back for like 10 minutes. I'm like, all right, that ship is sailed. Yeah. I'm about to figure out something else. But she showed up, she came back. She's like, he'll speak with the after batting practice. And I look up and he's actually in the cage right now, putting bombs into the, into, into McCovey Cove. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I was like, well, wow, this is cool. So he comes over with the interpreter and I'm like, uh, well, um, you know, I understand that um, you've done all these things last year. And, you know, I, I kind of looked and saw Buster Posey, you know, a giant won the world series, won the batting average title, won the MVP, all the same things and same team name and everything. And, um, He's like, he started laughing, like while I was saying the questions, because he understood the English, but he didn't speak it all that well. And uh, I was like, okay, this should be good. You know, whatever comes out of this should be good. And the interpreter said, well, he just met Buster Posey three days ago. And I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Wow. Yeah. He's going to make my story. And I'm like, he gave me a bat. He signed it for me and everything. We were playing the Giants in Scottsdale because it was during spring training time. March is when, you know, as you know, World Baseball Classic every four years. And uh, we were pra we were practicing, and we went and we were practicing with the Giants, you know, and and uh, and and so I was like, wow, that's pretty awesome. So they told me about that experience. I'm like, this is great. And toward the end of the interview, I said, uh, you're a little bit older than he is. Do you have any advice for him since uh, he's an up and coming guy and he's done some of those same things you have? And he's like, and then he laughs again. He says, the interpreter, um, I don't have any advice for him, but I hope he has some for me. And that was my kicker for the story. I'm like, All right. right, I'm good to go. And so that night, there was, it's a slow time spring training not much going on it was on the front page of mlb.com wow so i'm like well that's cool and then when i get back to school that summer um that was spring in the summertime um gets a malcolm gets a call from his buddy at mlb.com who's running the internship program saying do you still have that guy who did that one story on the japanese catcher he's like yeah he's like well our guy in chicago um he uh, got a job with espn he's he left so we need somebody to fill in for the white Sox and the cubs what do you like to do it? This is July. So it's half the season's over. He's like, would you, would you like to do it? I was like, yeah, sure. And so I go and that's where it all started for with me for MLB.com.
That's super cool. What a great story. That's just kind of fun to to hear. And you know, sometimes it's about being in the right place at the right time. There's so many things. It absolutely is. Yeah. I like about well, that. You're- I think the Lord, you know, the Lord kind of I remember that going across the street that one time and asking and, and saying, God, this would be cool. Yes. And I immediately thought that when I got my first gig in sports, like he did that. Uh, okay. We gotta talk about that because I have a few stories like that too, where I just yeah. literally was a like for a just a simple one. I was driving by a street right next to where we are. We we're going to somebody's house. I liked the neighborhood. I, it was like this little, it's not even a park. It's like an open space. I was like, God, I'd love to live around here someday. Some someday, you know, yeah. we literally sure. bought a house. Like I, I walk there when I go on my walks to exercise, I walk right through that field. Right. And it was not a, um, you know, not like a serious, Okay, God, I'm going to bargain with you now. Kind of a prayer, right? It was just a, this is the desire of my heart. And then when you go, God gives you these things. That's pretty cool. Yeah. What did that do for your faith when you kind of realize that, oh. Well, um, for me, you know, it's interesting because uh, as far as my faith from day one, 9907 to, and this was, uh, this was about 2012 now. We're in 2012 now and uh, 2013. Um, I was already a whirlwind of, of change in my life. Um, I went from being controlled from a, with the dominating father who basically I kind of hoped would die because if he didn't, I would be under his thumb forever. He literally wanted to like buy a house next door for, for me and my future wife to live in, like literally that. Wow. Controlling. And so like, I thought this is going to be my life until he's gone. And I was um, clinically depressed. I did not know that because at this point, like if you're young, I feel like if you're young and you're, you're depressed, you don't know it as much as if you're older and you you're aware and cognitive you're you have this cognition of or understanding of like this thing is out there this could happen to you um i was clinically depressed i didn't find out until i was um close to 30 and uh probably older than that and but i i, I may have been clinically depressed all the way back to my teen years yeah. so um I, 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 I went from that situation to suddenly I'm doing something so fun, so cool, so enjoyable, something that the Lord literally I asked kind of in passing and he gave it to me and he had just blessed me so much. It just makes you want to fall on your knees and say, thank you. I don't know why you did it, but you did for me. It's basically the same concept with salvation. Like we don't deserve any yeah. grace. We all deserve hell because we're born as sinners. Uh, because of Adam and Eve's sin, it's like you know. I like to say it's like an infection; it got passed to us. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people like to say, "I didn't ask for this. I'm a good person. I didn't ask for this. I, I, I'm, I'm better than that guy over there." Right. But it's like, but wait a minute. If you're born with, if you're a baby in Africa, in the middle of Africa, and you're born with HIV because you didn't get to, the medicine didn't get to you, and you die. Was that your fault? So if you have, if you're born with the lethal spiritual disease, it's the same thing. Yeah. So you need to repent and believe. And so that that basis of my faith was always the same. Now, obviously, we all go like this. You know, Absolutely. We, we go up, we go down. I look at it as when you zoom out, it's a Richter scale when you look at it day to day. You zoom out, that Richter scale is creating a little line that's going like that. It's going up, sanctification. Right. Um, if you're a true believer, you're going to be sanctified. And so I was. I had a lot of trouble. Uh, in, in, in times because of my depression and I had a lot of trouble with things. And, and um, I just found out literally last July that I am, a, I have celiac disease. And if I had known that, like if I had known that gluten destroys my insides, yeah, uh, I would not have been as messed up, you know, all that time. Like that was contributing to my depression. 
Um, but I, I've learned since that your stomach, your gut is literally like a second brain. So it like creates neurotransmitters. Yep. So all that stuff I'm learning now, but you know, I went from bad shape to amazing shape. So like, um, it was that God had done this for me. It wasn't so much like what it did for my faith. Obviously, obviously it, it, it was a, a boost for me, Right. but it wasn't a boost in my, in terms of what I, what I believed it as much as just this um, idea that he's my father and my actual father wasn't mm, like that. Yeah. And so I can't take my, I can't take my relationship with my, my earth father, my earthly father and take that in and let it bleed into what I believed about my heavenly father. So that part of it, I think was changing, you know, because he was showing that, you know, it's funny because my dad, he got us into baseball for his own reasons. He wanted his kids to be in the American sport. But then once we started getting obsessed with it and loved it, he resented it because it took time. It took a, folks, some of the focus away from him because we were all about baseball and the Giants, all this kind of stuff. I remember breaking a window in the house one day playing back in the backyard. And man, were we scared about that? Yeah. <laughs> because well. we knew we were going get, to get, get screamed at. But it was, it was, he didn't like it. He hated the fact that we did this. It's just like when he took me to church, I became a believer. And now he hates the fact that I'm a believer. It was the same thing. The very cause, again, the power of God in that situation, the very, the very cause of my distress in my life is the one who brought me in, who God used, you know, we talk about Osteen, but he used my father as, yeah. a, as, a, as, a, as a conduit here, as a, as a use. And my father, as far as I know, is not a believer, but he used him to put me there to do that, to have the Holy Spirit do that in my heart, which I now look back as conviction of my sin. It was right. convicting me that I am a sinner. Because I was so proud, I was so arrogant in my own head about, you know, atheism and everything else, and like knowing what I'm doing, and 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 thinking about thinking believers, Christians are fools, and anybody who believes in a God is a fool. And but you know, it's foolishness to the the, the gospel is foolishness, right? It's the scripture, foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God for those to build for for those who are saved, right? To salvation, and um, so that was what happened there. And then obviously afterwards. Uh, after that point, you know, I, I, I finished school and I got my first job out of school was the Indianapolis star. And, uh, then I, I moved out to Colorado. Um, and, uh, pretty much within a month, I got my first job was at the Colorado Springs Gazette. I was a social media manager there for like a month. And then I get a call from the same dude who ran the internship program. Oh, wow. Back then. He's like, we're hiring. And boom, like I had, to, I had to have that awkward conversation with my new boss in one month and say, <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of got to go because I'm about to, my, my, my wife's pregnant. We're going to have a baby. This will be a job I can do from home. You yeah. Know, I, I, I really, I mean, I really wanted to do it anyway, but like I put all that there as well because, you know, it's this pragmatism to it. And uh, they're like, that's all right. We're used to it. Thomas Harding of MLB.com who I work with um, worked there and left as well. So oh, wow. they're used funny. To, they had an editor over there that left for <laughs> like seven years ago. So they're like, they're used to, you know, us poaching those, you know, people from there or whatever, but that uh, really just made an incredible situation for me where not only did I get to do something I, I was good at and I loved and God gives us these kind of gifts to use for his glory. And yeah. one of mine is just either communication or writing, whatever. And I was able to use that. And, but he also gave me great opportunities in terms of um, meeting other believers and fellowshipping. I remember I was sitting in a dugout at Wrigley Field when I was intern there that year that they oh, called man. in the summer. That's super cool. I'm sitting, I'm sitting there before the game 
it's boring because like the Cubs are terrible and so are the Marlins who were there. I was covering the Marlins. And because uh, the interns got to cover the road teams too. That was a great internship program. They got to cover the road teams when the beat reporter didn't go. Wow, man. that That's just, that's so amazing. And um, so uh, I'm there. I'm just sitting there. And Juan Pierre. Yeah. Juan, Juan Pierre. Yeah. Juan Pierre sitting over there about, <laughs> you know, 20 feet from me. And I had just read something uh, when I was in school the year before that Juan Pierre became a believer because he was wearing this beast mode shirt. You know, and the, the T was across and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I go over there. I'm like, hey, man, I like your shirt. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, what's up? And we're just sitting there because he was um, he was uh, at that point toward the very end of his career. I think he ended up becoming a coach with them. But he was like at the very end of his career or maybe just his first year as a coach or something. So he's sitting there. He had the beast one shirt on. He's just sitting there. And I'm sitting there. And I gave him my testimony. He just started giving – he gave me his testimony. I gave him my testimony. I told him by my mom, that's what got him. Like I told him by my mom becoming a believer at 58 or, or at 48 or whatever. And that one, like he was, he pondered on that one for a while. Like he was like, that's amazing. And yeah. he said, uh, and we just, we just shared about, you know, our mutual love of the gospel and, uh, and, and then, and, we, and then Chris Coglin, I don't know if you remember him. He was a rookie of the year one year. I think so. And yeah. He ended up, uh, didn't have a great career after that, but he, but he was the Cubs that year and he came over and we were talking about me. It was me, Juan Pierre, and then the team, um, pastor, the pastor, the, the situation there was there's a pastor in Chicago who would always come to Wrigley or, or go to the South side and go to, to whatever they call that ballpark now guaranteed rate. Um, and he was the pastor in the area and he was the sports guy. He would come to pastor with the ballplayers and have old chapel and everything else on Sundays. This was a Sunday. And so he's there. He comes out, me, Pierre, him. We're all talking about something, each talking about something we had just read in the New Testament. So we're, we're talking about Paul and Ogden comes up. Who's this Paul guy we're talking about? And I guess Jenna joins the joins the uh, thing. And then we are all four of us are just kind of in a circle talking about the Lord. That was the best thing I think that's ever happened wow. for me in in this business because it was it's far more meaningful than anything else ever. I've got I've been, I've been so blessed to do a lot of really cool things again, because we say, as we say, right place, right time is actually, yeah, God places you there. Right. But we say right place, right time. I was there when, um, uh, in, in some of the, in some, I was there for the Ichiro's 3000th hit, you know, and I, wow. I somehow ended up being the guy to, to tell him after the game about the fact that, cause I'd seen on Twitter that during, right after it happened, the, the, the crowd at Safeco in Seattle, their game had already ended, but they all stayed to watch on the, on the big screen him get that hit and all gave him a standing O. And uh, so I said, do you, I don't know if you heard, but they gave you a standing ovation and he teared up. Like I, I never seen wow. Ichiro emotional and that was a cool moment. And, it, and actually Ichiro, I'll, I'll just say this because it's, he is the, he is, he gave me the best answer any athlete has ever given me covered the NBA a little bit too. He gave me the best answer any athlete has given me in terms of asking for time to ask a question. And he goes, I, I go in, he's heard every question in the book about 3000 hits because he's been stuck on 2998 for like two weeks. He's a pitch hitter, you know, at this point. <laughs> right. And so he's like heard everything. And I, I don't think he's going to want to talk to me about this. So I go up to his interpreter, he's getting changed. I'm going up to his interpreter and I'm like, I know he's not going to want to talk about this because he's probably been asked these questions about 3000 hits all the time. He's listening. Right. And he goes, he, he interrupts me and he talks to the interpreter and goes, he says something in Japanese. And then he said, Ichiro said, he'll talk to you if you can ask him a question that he hasn't heard yet about 3000 hits. 
So now I've got about 10 seconds, whatever's the polite amount of time to pause before saying another sentence right? Um, to figure out what to ask him. And that all worked out, but it was a really cool thing that he asked. And I'm glad he, I'm glad I got to be there to see it, it was the last at bat. He hit a triple off the right field wall wow. uh, that Para couldn't catch. And so it was cool, but uh, that that's aside. But so I got to do a lot of cool things in this business, um, see a lot of cool moments. Um, and, but the real cool the best parts are those parts when it's just an impromptu, you're just there and you see a dude, you know, as a believer and you guys kind of fellowship. That is super cool. I I love that. I know that there's a, there's a good Christian community within, within baseball. I don't know how it is in other yeah. sports, but for, for sure, that's, that's a thing. And um, very cool. Okay. Manny, I, I love your story and I definitely hear tons of providence all over it, right? God is, God has been putting you in the, in the right places and leading you and, and caring for you. Um, I don't know how much time you have cause we're kind of, kind of out, but um, I've, I've got about, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. Okay. Let me give you, cause nor- normally I wrap up, but I, I do have two things I want to ask. So you kind of touched on this um, first of all, about kind of how experiencing God as your father sort of, I, I know, did you find that healing for some of your father kind of, kind of thing or like how did you um because sometimes those things are you know yeah, related yeah. right uh, so the, the father the father aspect of it was yes um it, it was it was healing in terms of taking me from a place where my identity was wrapped up in my dad growing up it had to be basically it was it was almost like he was my thought police you know? yeah what's he gonna think about my next move um because we flash back to the guns pointed at us. We flash yeah, back right? to the moment where like in the backseat of the car where he's like, I'm going to kill us all today. You know, So all of those things are rooted down here because it happened when you're so young and things that happen at that impressionable age are like, they stay with you for till you die. And so that was the thing he was healing. He was healing. I feel like God was healing that. Like you are now, I'm, I am your father. It's like it's like when Jesus said, "Who are my mother? Who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Those who do the will mm, of God." Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm gonna meet later on today uh, someone from my church uh, for coffee, and uh, you know, I I only known him for a little while, but he's he's more family to me than my dad, you know, because yeah. in the sense that he's a believer, he's my brother in Christ. Um, and I was thinking about that today, this morning, and, and thinking about going over and see him. I was like. That really is it. We have a family, you know, the believer has a family in waiting away uh, that we may not meet here, but waiting in heaven uh, to be met in heaven. And um, that distinction between your earthly father and your heavenly father, your earthly, your earthly family by blood and, and by the flesh and your heavenly family, who is whoever is a believer that you fellowship with, that distinction became more and more clear. And, uh, you know, over time, like I said, I haven't talked to him about my dad in about 11 years so yeah 12 years now and so I, I i wrestle with that and that's something that i uh you know have to continue to pray about and to figure out but um god has definitely healed me not only emotionally but physically with finding out all the my ailments from when i was a kid yeah he's he's healed me with from my depression um he's just done so many incredible things for me that i just never thought were possible yeah, it's an it's an amazing um you know connection and sort of transformation there. I I definitely see that. The other thing I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is your book, The Blake Street Bombers. 
And yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Because the Blake Street Bombers are the, this team that the, the Rockies had. It's kind, of, kind of an amazing team, but you wrote about them as a 25 year anniversary, right? And of course, one of those guys is uh, a really famous Cardinal, Larry Walker, who's now Hall of Famer. But uh, he was really good for the Cardinals, though. He was. He was really yeah. good. Um, I, did he win with us, though? I don't know. Did we? I think he. No, he actually he 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 retired the year before. Yeah, yeah. He got an 05, and then they won in 06, but they gave him a ring. Oh, they did. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because that okay. So you got to mention that team, like that sort of like MV three, like right. that they oh four oh five. They were amazing, terrible in 06, and then we win it all. You just never know what's going to happen in baseball. You never know. It's baseball, right? Right. It's crazy. Uh, but anyway, the Blake Street Bomber. So it includes Larry Walker. But tell us about why. Why did you write that book? And kind of you know what what can people get if you're a baseball fan? You're going to love yeah. it. Well, um, it's interesting because in 2017, um, it was the 25th season of the Rockies. And so um, we, uh, I'm a member of SABRE, Society for American Baseball Research, and we have a chapter, the Rocky Mountain chapter here in Denver. I'm on the board there, and they, were, they wanted board members to each take uh, and write, if they, if they wanted to write a chapter in their new book about the 25th anniversary of the Rockies. I think it's called... Uh, um, baseball a mile high or something like that. And um, I got Dante Bichette. So uh, I got his number. I called him up and Dante's amazing. Like he yeah. can talk baseball with you forever. If you would be good. And uh, he's just such a student of the game. He's a kid. He's a big kid. You know, he's still a kid. He's still a guy who uh, a kid in at heart is in terms of the game. And we talked for, I think we, we with the, with the phone conversations all together, we probably talked for nine or 10 hours. Wow. And uh, this was just for a little chapter on his life. Book got published. And toward the end, I was like, wait a minute. You know, we're wrapping this thing up with Dante. And I'm like, have they, you know, it just occurred to me that, like, they haven't, they don't have a book on the Blake Street Bombers. At least I've never seen a book on the Blake Street Bombers as a group. And these guys are, everyone knows, like, when you say, if, a, if, you're, if you're a baseball fan, you know, of any length of time, you've heard the name Blake Street Bombers. And if there's not a book on them, there ought to be. And so I asked Dante, has anybody ever approached you for, to do this and he's like no i was like you want to do it <laughs> he's like yeah man let's do it all right it wasn't that simple but anyway um i was like okay well i got done today you know maybe i can get some of those guys so then uh it was since it was the 25th anniversary of the rockies ellis burks larry walker came back for their reunion you know that year and that summer they had a reunion and i i got them on board and um vinnie castillo is with the team he's a he's a coach so Oh, yeah. basically after every 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 day after batting practice we'd sit down and do like five minutes you know and just get on his life and so that's how it accumulated for his part of the book and um so i was like wow this is coming together again a god thing because there's no way these guys didn't know me from adam this should have been this should have been something that like tracy ringlesby or something right wrote you know and i'm just a guy kind of new on the scene i've been here since 16 and i do this with dante i think because dante and i kind of hit it off I think that was the basis for the other guys being cool with it. Like, okay, let's do it. Um, and with Larry, I was like, Hey man, all these guys are doing it. You know, <laughs> and he's like, well, then I guess I should do it too. And cause Larry's a very kind of quiet guy and kind of want, you know, yeah. doesn't want a lot of attention. So he seems sort of introverted. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, but he, he's, an, he's amazing. Uh, he's the funniest, one of the funniest people I've ever met. Oh, cool. Um, I remember going down to Florida to, to do this interview with him for the book. And this was in 2018 or 2019. So he had one more year left on the Hall of Fame ballot coming up. And I was like, he was, I mean, he had, he needed 22% gain to get 
and trying and we know how that all worked out. I still don't, I mean, I can't believe it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I said, what if you did get elected, you know, what would that, how would that feel? He's like, that would be really cool to go in with Derek here, but for him, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be cool for him to go in with me. You know? uh -huh. And so he's, a, he's, he's, he's a riot, um, really fun guy. I think misunderstood in a lot of ways over time. He's been misunderstood because he's, um, you know, he's very, he's very to the point with things. He's not, he doesn't try to like say anything that anyone for him, it's like, he's just saying what he thinks. And I think people take it the wrong way. What he, what he, what he, what he means is this, but they take it because it's very easy. Just like in our social media yeah. era now where you can take some snippet out of context and do that, do whatever you want with it. But uh, yeah, so that's why we did that. And uh, they were so good. It became just, they, they made the book because of the stories, the stories that they gave. I'm a stat guy, but the stats were like secondary here. This was a story about, I wanted to, people to know about their whole lives, not just their mm. few years here together. Um, you know, the fact that Ellis Burks was supposed to be the next Willie Mays in Boston, um, that he got cut, that he got released. And that almost just destroyed it, like his career because he was so, he wanted to be the guy there. They didn't know about uh, Andres Galarraga, who um, Don Baylor, as a hitting coach for the Cardinals, yeah, your team, uh, found them sitting under some under some stairs in the bowels of uh, Bush Stadium, crying because he thought his career was over because he was struggling so bad. And oh, then wow. that's where he opened up his stance. And Don Baylor is the guy who did that. And so Don Baylor did that. And then Don Baylor comes to comes the next year becomes the manager, first manager of the Rockies, and he's like, let's get him, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, more complicated than that, but that's what they did. And he won the batting average title that year. And Andres Galarraga became a star. Yeah, and so these guys have this amazing backstory. Larry Walker didn't even know the rules of the game when he got drafted by the Expos because he's a hockey guy. Oh, and wow. so he literally one day ran from third base to first base to uh, to get back to first on a ball that got caught in the outfield. He oh, he, first to third, yeah. and he crossed the. I mean, he went across the mound. Oh. And he's like, but I got him. I got back here before the ball got here. What's the what's, what's the problem? <laughs> And so that's him at eight, at 18 or 19 as one of the top prospects in the Expos organization simply because of his raw talent. Wow. And that's why when I looked into it, um, that's why I was like, this is a crime that he's not in the Hall of Fame because his numbers, if you really look at them, yep. he absolutely, he had everything against him. He was a perfect candidate to test the baseball writers. Injuries, course field, um, and a guy who played for, played, well, basically, that was it. Injuries in course field. Those were the things keeping them out. And I'm, I still can't believe the night it happened. I remember Dan Evans used to be the Dodgers GM. He's now here in Boulder. And uh, he's a part of our Sabre group. Uh, and he said, we're having a watch party for the Hall of Fame induction. And he goes, and he's like, we're kind of standing apart. So he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, so what I'm doing for those who can't see me is thumbs up, thumbs down. You think he's going to get in? I was like, no, nah, I think he's going to fall just short, like agonizingly short. Yeah. He votes. And this is his last chance on the ballot. And then when they announced that he got in, I mean, we were ecstatic. I, I couldn't believe it. He was, he, his, he's superstitious about the number three, number 33 is his number. Okay. He got married at three thirty-three on November 3rd. Um, he, <laughs> baseball yeah, players are he, weird about that. Stuff. Yeah. Right. He did three practice, three practice swings. He said, I would write my girlfriend's name in the dirt three times. And then when she dumped me that, that was gone. I had to figure something else out and all that kind of stuff. And he became the 333rd member of the hall of fame. Wow. And um, wow. so, you know, these are things that are not weighty matters or spiritual significance, but I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact my daughter's birthday is 3-3. Three, three. Oh, wow. Um, trying to figure out um, my, my brother, who's in the military, he runs a squadron in, in South Carolina, in uh, North Carolina. The squadron number is 333. He gave me a patch. He's like, give this to Larry. And uh, when he goes in the Hall of Fame. And so 
all of this stuff. I wrote the book. Somebody wrote, read my book and they, they mapped out the distance from Larry's first single A camp in Utica, New York to Cooperstown, not by, by road, but by direct route, 33 miles. Oh, wow. um, just all kinds of stuff. And, and so I'm really glad he got in for, because it was due to him. He, he really should have. I'm, I'm, I'm really bummed that he's not going to get a regular you know, ceremony and, and either is Derek Jeter. Hopefully if things work out well with the vaccinations and everything, maybe they'll let some people come in there. Yeah. But uh, thrilled with that. That's why we did the book. Second edition is coming after he gets inducted. Cause I got to update it. Nice. It'll be the second uh, Larry Walker hall of fame edition of the book. It'll have a new cover. It'll have a lot of new content as well. I'm trying to get Andres Galarraga. He's very elusive. He's the one guy I could not get. Oh, interesting. And, uh, I've been working with his publicist. So hopefully we'll get him too. Oh, fascinating. Okay. All of that is just absolutely fascinating. Obviously, as a, if you're a baseball fan at all, check it out. I mean, you, you say in here, you even got to talk to, I mean, like um, all these people, some of these people are legends. Walt Weiss, Joe Girardi, Tony LaRussa. Walt Weiss, Joe Girardi. Uh, yeah. A lot of Tony Joe Madden. I saw Joe Girardi. You know what? I, I real decided I like Joe Girardi. I was actually at the baseball game when Daryl Kyle died. We were really, I was there at the game. It was there the, and, and he called the game off. Right? It, yep. It was supposed to be my daughter's first baseball game. We were at Wrigley field. We show up and we're, we're kind of waiting for, and this was before like cell phones, right? So we had no idea what was going on and we're watching kind of the monitors. And uh, then he came, the clubs came out and lined up and uh, they brought out Mike and Joe Girardi was like, Hey guys, we got to pray for the Cardinals. Cause they got this. I forget. I'm probably butchering it, but he's like, they just had a tragedy and we're not going to play today. And we'll play again later. And so Joe, Joe is amazing. Um, I, um, you know, I don't know as far as if, uh, if he's a man of faith. I mean, I think he is as far as, you know, he, he's a professing Christian. I remember talking to him about the book when I was, when I wanted to talk to him, I, I just said, Dante, cause Dante and him are close, very close. Mm. And I said, Dante, you know, would you be able to tell him that I'm okay to talk to you? Know, I'm good. I'm good. You know, you can talk to me about you and whatever. And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll text him. And he's calling me. And for all I can, for all I can see, he was on his way to take the Phillies job. He was in the car. Oh, yeah. He called me up. And we were talking about Dante's career and their career together at the Rockies and how they met and how they became really good friends. And uh, and I just couldn't believe that his, his wife was in the car and, like, because he was asking her if she remembered such and such thing. And just a really, really, really nice man um, who is very uh, generous as far as I I. I know. Mm, very cool. Very yeah. Cool. See, seems like a classy guy. So mm -hmm. uh, amazing. Okay. Well, Manny, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you spending a little yeah, extra time. We covered your story, but we covered a little baseball, which I love too. So hopefully our friends will enjoy it. Thanks a lot for being here. Anything you want to leave us with? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I always just want to make sure that uh, it's funny because kind of like what Joel Osteen did that day, I became a believer is that, Jesus Christ, and you you do this, of course, but um, I would love to do it, is that Jesus Christ, we were born with that infection. We said it, right? We were born with that infection of sin, that we are born rebellious and against God, and one sin is all it takes to be condemned to hell forever. And it's and if you say it's not your fault, well, yeah, you're right, kind of, because you didn't willingly like say, I'm going to go against God. But it's like a disease. Like we said, like if you were a baby born with AIDS, right? Or yeah. HIV and you didn't get the medicine, you got it from your mom. We got it from Adam and Eve. And the only way back is to repent of your sins, which is turn back toward God. Uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will, and it says you will be saved. He will cast out no one who comes to you. We all need Jesus, every single one of us. And the thing I love most is that he is available. He is proof that God loves us. So 
at 100%. Thanks for doing that, friends. You can get uh, get the Blake Street Bombers. Anywhere. Can you just get Amazon anywhere you get books? Yeah, Amazon.com, just type in the Blake Street Bombers. It'll be, the first, um, it'll be the first item you see. Perfect. And, of course, I have links at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Uh, friends, thanks for being here. Manny, thanks for sharing your story. I loved it. I really appreciate it.